The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. You probably know the one. It's that bridge that crosses the Manukau Harbour. It's huge. It's big concrete, four or five lane thing. You need to get over that bridge when you go from Auckland to the airport or vice versa. You've probably gone over it thousands of times without thinking about it, even if you don't live in Auckland. And it's a really important bridge in New Zealand's industrial history. Because back in 1979, it was almost built. And then there was a strike. A lot of the carpenters and labourers on that project were in a dispute with the builder of the bridge. And there was a shutdown on the site. And the unions decided to get together and picket the site so that scabs, people who weren't part of the union, couldn't get on. And it dragged on. It became something that everyone heard about every night on the news. What's happening with the Mungary Bridge? The unions have stopped it again. And it went on for two and a half years. This bridge almost completed two and a half years of being locked out. That was the power of the unions in the 70s to demand pay increases. And often they got them. 10% pay increases, because at that point, inflation was really high. And one of the big concerns was that we'd gotten into a wage price spiral, that union strength used relatively low unemployment, particularly in the early 70s, to push through big wage increases, in part to compensate for big price increases that came after the first oil shocks. And that Big dispute, 1979, the Mungary Bridge dispute became an icon, if you like, of the failure of New Zealand's economy to adjust and to get things done. There was a really big march down Queen Street, a protest march led by a 22-year-old saleswoman called Tanya Harris called the Kiwis Care March, which was all against unions. And eventually, that union power was broken by the employment Contracts Act in 1991, and now less than 10% of New Zealand's private sector workforce are in a union. In fact, many people are now contractors. Over the years, a lot of people who were working full-time as employees who felt connected to that workplace and felt in a position to go and ask the boss for a pay increase, they didn't have a boss anymore. They were working for themselves, but didn't feel they had the strength to push up their prices. They'd been atomized into lots of different little units that couldn't come together and exercise any market power. At the same time, we saw the growth of these international work platforms, the likes of TaskRabbit, which again meant that people didn't feel secure in their job or that they had much market power. So over the last 10 to 20 years, even when unemployment's been relatively low and there was market power in the hands of workers, we haven't seen the strikes or the big wage increases, the big across-the-board awards. And that meant that over the last 10 to 20 years, particularly the last 10 years, wage inflation has been relatively low, between 1% and 3%, which, of course, is around about where we've seen inflation of consumer prices. Until now, 
In the last year, of course, we've seen wage inflation uh, relatively low and price inflation up at 4.9%. And now we have a whole bunch of people in the business sector, economists, people worried about the economy, old people <laughs> who say, hey, we're going back to the 70s, back to the stagflation era, back to the era of the Mungary Bridge dispute. We're going to have big wage increases that spur big price increases that spur big wage increases and we're off to the races with a real problem, the destruction of the low inflation environment that was created over the last 30 years. And that's a bad thing. And so what we've seen this week is the Reserve Bank put up the official cash rate by 0.25%, from 05 to 0.75%. And it specifically pointed to a tight labour market as one of the reasons it needed to cool the economy down, to make sure things didn't get out of hand and we didn't see the restart of these wage price spirals. But it's clear when you actually look at the numbers that we certainly don't have a wage inflation problem at the moment. When you look at the labour cost index measure of wage inflation, which is the best way to strip out the effects of people working longer hours or people who've taken promotions or have extra skills that they can charge for, the actual wage rate for the same type of work at the same amount of time, that has only increased 2.4% in the last year. Now, some economists think it will rise to 3.5%, but still it's relatively low and obviously less than the inflation rate of 4.9%. So it's actually a real wage deflation, a real wage shock. So why are we not seeing the sorts of big wage increases that we're told just naturally happen when you have a free market with too much demand and not enough supply? We are hearing some anecdotes, of course, that people are being poached from one job to the next, that there are teams of people who are sometimes moving and getting big pay increases or flash cars or whatever it is to tempt you out of your job. And in some areas where there are very few people who have the sorts of skills, sometimes in IT, coding, you are seeing people getting big wage increases, but it's not across the board. And remember, a lot of people are in jobs where they get minimum wage. It's about 175000 just just less than 10% of the workforce are basically on minimum wage. Now, actually, the minimum wage has been rising quite fast, which has been good. And as we find out in this week's podcast, that has actually been less damaging in terms of reducing employment growth than everyone thought, and actually a very positive way to increase wages. But for the rest of the population, we're not seeing that wage increase. And that is a factor to watch over the next wee while to worry about whether our central bank has pulled the trigger too fast in expectation that we are going back to the sort of 70s wage price spiral. And one way to think about how it's changed is to think about how you would deal with your own situation. Would you feel comfortable walking in to an office to see your boss and just thumping the table and saying, can I have a 10% wage increase, boss? In New Zealand, we're not very good at that sort of conflict. We tend to be a bit more passive-aggressive about things. It's hard in New Zealand to stomp into the boss's office and ask for a 10% pay increase. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is a podcast for the Spin-Off Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Bank. 
Well, now it's time to talk to Craig Rennie from the CTU, or what used to be called the Combined Trade Unions, an old debater and friend from around uh, the parliamentary Beehive Reserve Bank Treasury complex who has jumped the fence into the CTU. Great to see you, Craig. Thanks for having me on, Bernard. Happy to see you too. I'm keen to find out what's happening in the labour market. Um, Tell us what you're seeing in the labour market right now. Because all I hear from employers and a bunch of people is that it's incredibly tight and wages are taking off and there's competition for all sorts of people. But then I look at the latest wage figures and the labour cost index actually shows only 2.4% wage inflation, which doesn't sound absolutely nuts to me. So what's going on? Uh, You're absolutely right, Bernard. I mean, if you were to believe the headlines and to believe the stories, then the country is beset by labour shortages that employees are able to demand whatever wages that they want, and that individuals, you know, it, it, that it's a seller's market um, for uh, for labour in New Zealand, and that might certainly be the case if you have skills that are highly in demand or where there's restrictions. Um, but in general, that's not the case, and certainly in general, we're not seeing the kinds of stratospheric wage rises that you know some people are, are claiming. Yes, there are some large wage rises and we wish they were you know more widely spread um, than they currently are but you know the labor cost index did show that 2.4 percent wage increase last year now you've got to set that against an inflation increase of 4.9 percent which means that in real terms the average new zealander took a 2.5 percent real terms pay cut last year um, which is probably one of the largest real terms pay cuts for years 42% of New Zealanders didn't see a pay rise last year. And that's the same as in March 2019. Um, and in fact, that's a higher figure than most of 2019, which was pre-COVID. So pre-COVID, more New Zealanders were getting more pay rises than now. 82% of New Zealanders got a pay rise less than inflation. And if we look, if we try and break it down, is it a public sector story or a private sector story? 1.9% is the LCI change, the Labour Cost Index change in the public sector. in the private sector. So it's not because of, you know, Wellington bureaucrats living high on the hog, you know, doing this. There's simply actually not a significant amount of wage pressure inside the system. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, if you're in receipt, if you happen to have skills that are valuable and in trade, you probably can, um, you know, try and get a pretty penny right now. And unemployment is low, um, but it's also patchy. 100,000 people want more work but can't get it they're underutilized in the data and you know um, uh, statistics in zealand uses a very generous measure of what full employment means which is that you're working 30 hours or more so these are people who are earning working less than 30 hours would like more hours can't get it there's a hundred thousand of them in new zealand the rates of mardi unemployment are twice the rates of general unemployment you know, and if you're a tall, white, handsome fella like myself, then, you know, the or yourself, Bernard, you know, the, sort of, the unemployment rate is 2.9%. Um, great, wonderful. But for Marty, it's 6.9%. Why is it that wages are quite sticky uh, in New Zealand and in large parts of the world, even though unemployment below 4%? Um, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, if you had an unemployment rate of below 4%, you would have expected or seen strikes galore, new wage deals, 10% plus pay increases. 
but I don't sense that's happening there. It's very rare to see a strike now, very rare to see one of these, you know, sector-wide deals. Is there something structural going on here? Sure. I mean, there are various schools of thought involved in, in, in this area, Bernard, one of which is that with such low rates of unionisation in the private sector, you know, the average rate of unionisation in the private sector is now 10%. And in many sectors, it's actually well below 10%, you know, agriculture, elsewhere. It's very, very low levels of overall unionization, which means there's no structures to barter for better wages when they're available. And, and individuals, by definition, face power imbalances with employers when it comes to wanting wage increases, um, you know, particularly in low, lower skilled industries where you're not able to trade that skill somewhere else. So, you know, there's low unionization rates in New Zealand um, probably are contributing um, to that, one of the things we're also seeing is the rise of contracting as an employment type rather than f- a full-time employment. If we look over the past two years, the number of paid employees in the pu- in, in, across the public and private sectors rose 2.9%. But the numbers of self-employed um, without employees, i.e. what we would normally call a contractor, they rose 17.2% over the last two years. There are now over 350,000 of these self-employed without employee individuals in New Zealand. And when we break that down again into men and women, um, we can see that um, for women, they're entering the labour market or coming into the labour market in areas that actually um, are more insecure. They're more in temporary work. They're more in contracting work. They're more in agency work. And as a consequence, what we may well be finding is the, the low unemployment is as a consequence of females re-entering the labour market but doing so into, frankly, some quite insecure forms of work. That, that contracting trend um, could cut both ways, couldn't it? Because, you know, when there is a shortage of people and you have a, a very um, tenuous relationship with a, a person or a contractor, in theory they could say, right, oh, well, you know, I've got um, plenty of offers from other people, I'm... I'm footloose and fancy free, therefore I'm just going to increase my contracting rate and you don't really have a choice. So it could cut both ways, could it? Any evidence or signs or or thinking about what's going on there? So again, one of the key schools of thought in this, and certainly over the past few years, um, you know, we've seen this, is that essentially we don't have a labour shortage in New Zealand, we have a skills shortage in New Zealand. And so you're quite right. If you happen to have a situation where you have skills that are in demand, then you probably can. You probably can say, do you know what? The next place down down the road will employ me for 5% more. What are you going to do to make it worth my while here? Um, that's probably a part of it. Part of it as well is probably the fact that individuals are still a little bit concerned, and we can see this in the expectations data and in the, you know, is it now the right time to buy a white good? Is it now the consumer confidence data? They're a little bit worried that the economy actually isn't going to continue in terms of this this very strong growth, 2.8% GDP per quarter growth that we've seen um, last quarter. Um, and as a consequence, they're probably saying, well, a bird in the hand is probably worth two in the bush. And so I'll continue with the job that I have rather than, you know, going out there and trying to find a better job or bothering the boss for a pay rise right now. Um, one of the things, you know, um, a lot of, uh, so some of the bank economists have talked about, um, you know, wages being a lagging indicator um, in the economy. And certainly one of the things we might see is that we weren't expecting six months ago the inflation that we have now. And it might be that six months time we see 
wage rises coming through. The Reserve Bank's inflation expectation data a year from now has inflation 4%. Um, so it might well be that we see it coming through then, but we don't have any evidence to that effect that that's currently the case. And we certainly don't have any evidence that there are big, you know, that, that there's, not, there's not a spike in strike action. There's not a spike in wildcat walkouts from, you know, um, from, from workplaces. You know, the 70s may be back in vogue in various places, but, you know, they're, not, you know, they're certainly not back in vogue in industrial relations. Could you see um, people getting better wages and conditions by focusing mostly on the conditions, saying, hey, I'll keep with my current wage, but I'll only work four days a week, or I want the flexibility to be able to work all the time from home and not have these going back and forth. So the figures might say that your wages haven't increased, but actually for you, per hour worked or um, in terms of the value you think you're getting from your labour, you're actually getting more. So it, yeah. it may well be a measurement issue. And certainly one of the things that we've seen, not so much in New Zealand but overseas, is um, uh, you know sort of what's being called the great resignation in the US the rise of Reddit forums like anti-work where um, individuals, you know, turn up and basically say, I've had enough, you know, the corporate treadmill, um, you know, the fact that they were abused for so long over the long boom period up until 2020, up until the start of COVID. Um, they just said, you know what, I'm out of here. COVID's made me realign what's actually important. Made me rethink what's actually really important and my time is more important. And so as a consequence, they may well be saying, well, do you know what, I'm not going to work I'm going to work five days, so four days out of five, rather than what happened previously, which is where you worked six days out of five and you just weren't paid for the sixth day. Um, you know, and so it's so so it may well, that may well be the case that you may well be seeing individuals choosing rather than to take it as wages, take it as terms and conditions. Um, and part of the evidence that we get for that is actually the number of hours worked in the last set of data fell. Now. That's interesting because it may well be that, well, was that because of COVID? Was it the Auckland lockdown? Was it the start of that? Was it actually there were some interesting, you know, factors going on there? But actually, were we seeing individuals withdrawing labour and choosing instead to do something else with it? Um, and pay simply being another component of the overall terms and conditions of their work. Now, one way to you know force wages higher, if you're into that sort of thing, is to increase the minimum wage. And over the last three years, we've seen quite a fast increase in the minimum wage as part of the uh, Labor New Zealand First election deal from 2017 to 2020, which increased the minimum wage to $20 an hour, which mm. um, was significantly faster wage growth than the rest of the economy. And there are, of course, many small businesses and uh, people on the centre-right of politics who said, this will cost many, many jobs and it will be counterproductive because whenever you put up wages so fast like that, people lose their jobs and jobs aren't created. But uh, we've, we've had three years of this now and there's been a few studies looking at how these quite fast minimum wage increases have affected the labour market and what, what have they found? Um, there are people, Bernard, who still believe in um, the Yeti, who believe in the Invisible Man, um, who believe that um, a flying spaghetti monster, um, you know, is responsible for all actions on earth, um, and you cannot persuade them otherwise. It is such, unfortunately, with the minimum wage. Um, despite the fact that in in twenty nineteen, the minimum wage was seventeen dollars seventy, it rose to twenty dollars. 
at the same time as unemployment continued to fall. You know, we saw um, papers recently produced by both NZIER and MOTU, those notorious left-wing um, organizations, um, saying that essentially you could lift the minimum wage in NZIER's case in what they called a Goldilocks zone of up to $25, and it would have no effect on the level of employment in the country. Um, and uh, Motu's paper showed that having looked at the data for over the past 10 years, they can see no noticeable effect of the minimum wage on employment, either internationally or in New Zealand. So I think it's about time we actually put to bed this story that the minimum wage leads to very significant um, changes in unemployment or employment restraint, as MB likes to call it. And it's about time that we ask the question, what's a minimum wage that's decent, that provides a decent quality of life, that allows New Zealanders to lead lives of meaning and purpose to them and to engage in society? And what we have in New Zealand is that wage calculated by the living wage Aotearoa, an organisation, a completely separate NGO, who sets that up and calculates the cost of living in terms of childcare, transport, housing, heating, and says this is the minimum amount you need. It seems to me, and it certainly seems to the trade union movement, that you know, the, we discovered that the essential workers in New Zealand were not those working on the front line of finance during COVID. They were those who were working on the front line of making sure that the, that the shelves had toilet rolls on them, that the, the hospitals were clean, that there were security guards working. And it's those groups who actually need the, the reward and, and the recognition of the essential role that they played during COVID. Um, and a key part of that for us is saying, let's make sure that they've got a wage, which means that they can have a decent quality of life, because otherwise we're asking them to subsidise New Zealand's economic model and not the other way around. And so for us, the CTU says, let's move the minimum wage to the living wage, $22.75 an hour. So from $20 to $22.75 um, next year, which is when the uh, price is due to, or the wage is due to be reset. And it's one of these weird things where the minister comes out and announces the wage will be X, yes. which is, you know, uh, it's fun. I wish they set the price of petrol and houses like that. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, to go from $20 to $22.75 an hour in one year, that's more than 10%. There's this talk of the Goldilocks zone. Is $2.75 more than 10% um, a little bit of a hot porridge or is it is it still Goldilocks porridge? Well, one, um, it's it's slap bang in the middle of that Goldilocks zone that NZAI articulated between $20 and $25 an hour. Um, and two, um, it shows how much these workers are being underpaid and undervalued right now. If, if $22.75 an hour is the minimum wage that you need in order to lead a life, a decent life, a life of, of a sufficient quality of life in order to be able to engage um, with our fellow New Zealanders, um, then do you know what? That's the wage that we should be paying. Now, if the statistics are true, if the statistics are true and unemployment is 3.4% and employers are crying out for workers and there are shortages of labour around the place, then actually this won't make any difference because that should be working its way through the system anyway. And employers should be wanting to make sure that they're retaining their staff with a wage level that recognises the contribution that they're making. So for me, this is really straightforward. But yeah, uh, I, I don't, I, I could, the, the argument from those who say, well, this will just simply lead to inflation. Um, again, we haven't, we saw 10 years of inflation below 2%, below the midpoint. Um, and yet we saw the minimum wage rise 
um, you know, a very, very significantly over the past three years. For those who say it would lead to unemployment, there is no data. And to top it all off, the Nobel Prize for Economics this year was won by David Card um, and his seminal paper, Fast Food Restaurants um, in the US, which looked at the impact of minimum wage increases um, in the US and showed no impact of minimum wage. In fact, the opposite that and several studies that have tried to replicate this since then have done the same. Minimum wage increases actually led to increased levels of employment. So, yeah, it's time to put the bedtime stories of the Yeti and the abominable snowman and others to bed and actually um, just concentrate on what's really important, which is at delivering a living wage. Now, it's quite important, um, this idea that there is a wage price spiral brewing because a lot of people are saying to the Reserve Bank, ah, we don't want the 70s and 80s back again. The dragon is awakening. We need to kill it right now with a big, juicy rate increase. And that's what we've seen this week with a, well, it's not big and juicy. It's certainly um, more than a morsel, uh, 0.25% up to 0.75%. And the Reserve Bank is forecasting that it'll put the OCR up to 2.6% over the next couple of years, uh, which is quite substantial. And the Reserve Bank did talk about you know, tight labour markets and concerns about wage price implications. And also the Reserve Bank of Australia, for one, is saying we're not going to put up interest rates until we see the whites of the eyes of the yeah. wage inflation going over 3% before we pull the trigger. Uh, do, do you think there's a a risk here that uh, all of this talk of wage price spirals and, you know, um, uh, back to the future uh, of the 1970s and everyone's wearing wide trousers and sparkly tops is is real and that it, it might actually cause a policy mistake from the Reserve Bank. Well, if it was only the ability to wear flared trousers, sparkly tops, you know, and have bad haircuts that drove full employment, that drove cheap housing, um, and drove, you know, um, sort of, you know, a higher quality of life, then do you know what? I, for one, will be having sideburns, the likes of which haven't been seen since the last days of Wizard. Um, so, um, you know, so, but I mean, in, in terms of, you know, uh, for uh, are we likely to see inflation get out of control? Now, there are essentially two camps around the world. Camp number one, um, which is led by the majority of reserve banks around the world, says that inflation right now is due to temporary factors. It's due to cash stimulus from, you know, uh, the US, from Europe, from China, from elsewhere. Um, it's due to supply strain rest restrictions, which will ease out bottlenecks, which will ease out as a consequence of, you know, the economies of various parts of the world heading um, back to normal. And that inflation expectations around the world one year from now are much lower than they are today. There's then a second camp led by a significant number of private banks um, around the world which essentially says that uh, inflation's here to stay, and unless governments and, the res and reserve banks do something about it, it'll get worse. And that, as you quite rightly point out, that um, if wage demands lag inflationary demands, you'll get a first and then a second wave effect, and it'll it'll build on each other. Now, one of them will inevitably be right. I think for me, the key thing that I look that I look for is to what extent are we seeing those wage demands, and we're not, and we're not seeing them globally either. To what extent are we seeing supply chain restraints? And we are, that's undoubtedly true. And com global commodity prices are at record highs right now. So to what extent um, in New Zealand, even if we were to lift the OCR to two, three, five, whatever percent it would be, if the drivers of inflation are international, then actually it doesn't have any impact on 
inflation. The only way we have an impact on inflation is if you were to drive consumption lower. And you would only do that with really high levels of interest rates. Because if it's oil, if it's commodities, if it's food, if it's shipping, then actually they're well outside of the control of the Reserve Bank and the OCR. This is not about the quantity of money chasing goods in New Zealand. So right now, the, the idea that um, you know, we need to be raising or hiking interest rates at a click at a really fast pace in order to actually push that inflation, I think that story's not there. And if I might be suppose to suggest that um, actually the Reserve Bank can increase interest rates, but the banks have already increased mortgage rates. They've already priced increases into mortgages. Mortgage rates are now three and a half, four percent for one year. So that's already baked in. So simply increasing the OCR certainly wouldn't have, I think, the impact that we want to. And, you know, higher wage inflation never seems to have been a problem for chief executives of the NZX50, who clearly have skills that are in need and demand as higher end wage salaries have, have increased significantly across not only New Zealand, but across the Western world, because they've been incentivized to work. You know, you give them that income so that, so that they work really hard. But that, that logic doesn't then seem to apply to their workforce. Craig Rennie, thank you very much for coming on to When the Facts Change. After the break, we talk to Mary Jo Vergara, an economist at Kiwi Bank, to find out what's going on in the guts of these wage and price figures. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank's chief economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They, they've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world, and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. 
And now to find out more about what's happening in our labour market, we welcome into When the Facts Change, Mary Jo Vergara, who's an economist at Kiwi Bank. Yeah, kia ora, Mary Jo. How are you? Kia ora, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, um, jumping on the podcast. I'm trying to understand what's going on in our labour market at the moment because I hear a lot from employers and in the ether that wages are about to explode, that we could have a wage price spiral, and that's why we need to clamp down on inflation before we go back to the 1970s-style wages trying to chase prices higher all the time. But when I actually look at the numbers, it doesn't seem to show massive wage inflation. So what are you seeing and expecting in the labour market at the moment? Yeah, so the latest jobs report showed just an exceptionally tight labour market that we currently have. Um, Unemployment, the unemployment rate has fallen to a record low of 3.4%, but at the same time participation continues to rise and it's hit a record high of 71.2%. So basically if you... If you want a job within reason, there's one available to you. Um, But what a tight labour market ultimately means is upward pressure on wages. We're starting to see a little bit of that come through Um, over the year. Wages have risen by 2.5%, which is the highest rate in over a decade. Um, Given strong demand for labour, rising inflation pressures and um, a closed border, there's uh, wages are set to rise materially from here. We're expecting wage growth to peak at around 3.5% by the middle of next year. But when you've got inflation running at 5%, it'll take a while until, you know, you'll take a little bit more for households to feel better off. Because, um, you know, in the past, in the 1970s and 80s, when you needed a wage increase, you went to the union, who then went to the boss, who threatened a strike, and then you got the wage increase. How do we know that we're going to see the wage inflation flow through normally in in the way that it should in a market? Or is it going to be a bit sticky? Yeah, it's interesting because I guess this time around, what's driving wage inflation is this labour and skill shortage. But there's this demand for labour. And when you've got a closed border, the, the pool of available talent is shrinking. But firms are having to, they need to fill up those vacancies. And the way to do that is to raise their wages or to offer some you know, other perks like flexible working hours to try and attract and retain that talent. We don't have the access to overseas labour um, at the moment, so firms are having to look inward to get the labour that they need to get the work done. So how do people get wage increases these days? Do they, um, you know, quietly send an email to the boss saying, hey, um, my prices for my things that I buy have gone up 5%, so I'd quite like a 5% pay increase or you know accidentally forwarding the email from the recruiter saying hey we can give you a big sign on bonus sorry boss accidentally sent you that email how do you how do you actually get a wage increase these days um asking for a friend yeah. <laughs> uh, well i guess it, when you come up to your when, when you come up to your annual review and you just sort of start to discuss your wages and where you think i think you'd come in with the expectation that living costs are going to be rising you've got inflation running at five percent and it's not even expected to peak at that point so you, you've got workers demanding compensation for higher living costs and that's one way to see um to try and get you know higher wages out of it and what we're seeing overseas, we're told, is lots of resignations. People saying, right, I've had enough of this job and I've got a better offer somewhere else, I'm off. Or uh, even worse, or better, depending on who you are, uh, 
you know, I've had enough of work completely. <laughs> this COVID thing's broken me. I'm, I'm going to go off and retire or um, just have a quiet time. <laughs> so uh, what are we seeing here in terms of churn and people leaving jobs, going to new jobs, being poached, um, those sorts of things? Yeah, it's a very big story. I think developing in the US especially, we saw 4.2 million Americans leave their job. Um, it's this idea of a great resignation or big quit, describing the phenomenon of people leaving their jobs during the pandemic. Um, and what we're seeing is, again, it's that demand for labour that they have the sort of shift in bargaining power toward the employee that they can go in and say, uh, that they can sort of threaten to switch jobs, whether if, if, unless you give me a pay, a pay rise or to offer me more perks of a different flexible working hours. And I guess in the US it's a little bit different because they're dealing with a shrinking labour force. Um, participation there hasn't, it's sort of sticky around 61%, so the, the workers there have quite a strong bargaining power. In New Zealand it's a little bit different um, because we're actually close to full employment and again we've got participation continuing to rise. So what we're dealing with is a shrinking pool, a, a drying up pool of available talent um, and that's one way that we're, that there's a correlation to wage inflation there. Yeah, that um, that talent uh, competition is fascinating. We're hearing talk of people being offered sign-on bonuses, people being offered extra days, leave. Um, I just wonder whether the measurement of this wage increase might be quite difficult this time because people choose to take the wage increase by, for example, asking for more leave or asking for um, different work hours or, you know, asking for childcare or some other hard-to-measure perk. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thought. You know, the pandemic has um, highlighted that flexible working is something that we're starting to value quite a bit that again, it might not mean a direct correlation to I want more wages, but just you know more perks in terms of the job to get more satisfaction out of out of the job that I'm doing. So that is an interesting thought, and maybe that's uh, one reason why we might see sort of more depressed wage growth or more muted wage growth than we might expect traditionally speaking. That uh, difference between New Zealand and America, say, on the participation rate is really interesting. I'm always shocked when I look at the American numbers and 61% of the population who are of an age to work uh, are, own, are available to work. So many people have either given up or are just mm. sort of alienated from the, from the workforce. Whereas here, you know, significantly over 70% and quite solid and not falling through COVID. What's going on there? What, what, why do New Zealanders love to work so much? Yeah, in the US you have people who are, that's, that sticky participation rate, people are a little bit anxious or just not wanting to re-enter the labour market. But um, here in New Zealand, our employment has surged 50,000 in the September quarter alone, a woman making up a large share of that uh, employment gain. But yeah, you're saying participation continues to rise. I think it's just the fact that jobs are available here. Uh, people have a reason to re-enter this, you know, talk of of wage growth. Maybe that's a that's a lure for them to come in. Maybe they can sort of test their bets there, see if they can get, um, you know, higher wages if they do re-enter. So we are sort of seeing a difference in terms of the feeling around whether I should re-enter the labour market between the US and here in New Zealand. And one of the really interesting areas that's changing at the moment is around migration. Um, in the past, over the last five or six years, 
whenever there's been pressure on the labour market, we've been able to suck in people with skills and sometimes not quite so many skills from overseas, which seems to have kept a lid on wage inflation. There is some debate about that. But um, we certainly haven't seen any migration really in the last 12 months for obvious reasons, and it doesn't look like there's going to be a huge amount in the next 12 months. The government itself has said it wants to tighten some of those settings to take some of that um, downward pressure off wages. How do you think the change in the migration situation might um, twist or or affect wage inflation? Yeah, it's interesting because I think what that means for uh, what the current sort of zero net migration we have currently has meant that the demand for labour has actually been broad-based. Everything from hospitality to construction are needing employees. So, which might suggest that any wage inflation we do see could also be broad-based. You know, hospitality, they're reliant on overseas labour to do that type of work. Um, but just so much as uh, construction and those sort of professional services like IT, they're reliant on, skill sh- on skilled workers, which um, is c- kind of lacking here in New Zealand. So we're also, they're also reliant on um, overseas labour. So given that, just as much as the demand for labour is broad-based, so too, I think, would be the wage, any, uh, any growth in wage inflation. Now, one of the normal responses to a spike in uh, labour costs for a business is to say, hang on a minute, perhaps it would make more sense for me to um, invest in a new machine or a new way of doing business or maybe a new business structure to improve the productivity, the amount of output I get per hour of work from every person rather than just simply throwing more labour at the problem. Is, is there any sign that businesses in New Zealand are going, OK, time for me to maybe reinvest in my systems or come up with a new machine that means I don't have to employ quite so many people? Yeah, we are starting to see that. Um, the NZIR has a, that QSBO survey that comes out quarterly and it continues to show that more and more businesses are investing in labour-saving capital, that they're sort of having to come to terms that overseas labour, it's not a reliant source, reliant source right now, that they're having to rework their business models and focus more on capital. Uh, I guess the pandemic has exposed our underinvestment in that area of technology. Some industries, horticulture, agriculture, they've had to rework the way that they operate given that we don't have that access to overseas labour. So there is, I'm seeing some good stories come out of that sector that they're investing in um, research to look at the way things can be better automated, which I guess is a silver lining out of this pandemic. You don't know what you've got until it's not there and you've had to rework what you do. So the asparagus industry, for example, is looking into robotic harvesting, which has been really interesting to follow personally. But um but it's this just what the pandemic has exposed and just a way to solve that problem. Yeah, and some of the changes have been forced on us and that a lot of smaller businesses have um, suddenly made themselves <laughs> more online out yeah. of necessity and suddenly discovered maybe they didn't need all those extra workers that they might have taken on in the past. Yeah, we've seen over the past 20 or so months, businesses have looked at their business model in light of COVID and the limitations on face-to-face interactions and what they've done in response is bolster their online presence. Um, And that's actually been a a way that our economy has held up relatively well in this Delta lockdown. That's that's something that's been different to the uh, 2020 lockdown. Well, Mary Jo, thank you very much for um, diving into the labour market there. I really appreciate it on When the Facts Change. No worries. Thanks for having me. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank 
are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te ai he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.